Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is, Should We Worship Jesus? Most Christians never give worshiping Jesus a second thought. However, as biblical Unitarians, those who believe the Father is the only true God, we do need to wrestle with this question. Some have argued that worshiping Jesus is tantamount to idolatry, since we should only worship God. Others have taken the view that we can worship Jesus on a different level than God, and that doing so is not only permissible, but encouraged by God. I go through some of the words translated, worship, and serve, list out worship acts, and handle objections and limitations in an effort to see what the Bible actually says about this important practice. Listen to this message to find out more. Thank you. Please be seated. First Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Absolutely foundational. And whatever we decide to answer the question, should we worship Jesus or not, this remains the truth, that there is only one God, and Jesus is someone who belongs to the category of what? The man, Christ Jesus, right? He's not in the category of guys, he's in the category of man. Um, and I also want to direct your attention to Acts 17.11, which reads, These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. These are the Bereans. They were the ones that received, and, and they neither accepted nor rejected the message, but they checked it against the scriptures. And that's what we're called to do as a people of God. You know, you hear a message, you don't just accept it because the person's wearing a tie in the front. We could get all kinds of people to wear ties in the front, you know? And uh, you don't reject it just because the guy's wearing a tie in the front, right? You know, you just... You hear it, and they, they, they heard it with eagerness, and then they checked it against the Scriptures. And that, and that is what we're all accountable to do. So I encourage you to do that today. And in the end, I want to say, whatever the Bible says is what I want to believe. Okay, and that's, I'm just going to throw that, throw that out there. That's where I want to be. I want to be on the side of the Bible. So if the Bible is disagreeing with my beliefs, I'm going to change my beliefs. You know, and I'm not advocating some massive change right now, so just... Relax. But I'm saying, I'm saying as a principle for interpretation, whatever the Bible says is what I want to believe. So that's the introduction. Let's talk about some worship vocabulary. Um, there are two major words that are used throughout the Bible for worship. There's the word bowing. In the Hebrew, it's shachah, or in the Greek, it's proskuneo. That's not so important as to realize that this word is translated worship, and what it literally means is to bow, to come before somebody, anywhere from something like this to flat-out prostration with your face on the ground. Anywhere within that range is this uh, idea of worship that we find in both the Old and New Testament. So here are some example verses. 1 Samuel one twenty-eight. Oops, I skipped it. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. This is Samuel, the boy. And Hannah has dedicated him to serve God. And she brings him and gives him over to the service of God. And it's, you know, she says this, and then the boy worshipped the Lord there. It's this word 
Shachah. And it literally simply just means to bow, to prostrate, to fall down, to show this sort of homage or respect. And it's translated worship sometimes. Other times it's not. Other times they'll just, they'll just translate it as prostrate or bow. Now afterward, David arose. This is 1 Samuel 24, 8. Now afterward, David arose and went out to the cave and called after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the ground and prostrated himself. Now, does David think Saul is God? Saul, the man who's hunting him from cave to cave. Oh, yeah, he's God. I don't think so. So this is it's really fascinating, right? Because the boy Samuel worships Yahweh. And then here, David prostrates before Saul. And it's the same exact word. There's, there's not a vocabulary difference in the Bible about whether it's done to a person or done to God. That's something that I think we have kind of constructed later on. Here's another really fascinating one. Revelation 3.9. This, this involves the people of God, the saints. Uh, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. You see there it says, bow down at your feet. You know, that is... This word proskuneo is the same word that's translated worship many other places. And here it's done to this, this congregation of Christians in the book of Revelation. Um, and so is this advocating idolatry? Is it advocating, you know, giving something that only belongs to God? No, it's, it's saying that they're going to bow before them. They're going to honor them in this way. Um, interestingly enough, the King James Version, uh, because back in the uh, 1600s, uh, the, the word was a little more flexible. They translated this worship here. I will make them come and worship at your feet. Um, and then we have Matthew 2.2, 2, uh, a verse about Jesus. It says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now the Magi, they weren't trained in Christian theology, right? Jesus had just been born. You know, Christian theology was kind of just getting started. And their understanding was based on this star and based on some things they had figured out that there was a king that was born. And so they traveled and they got there and they, they came before Herod the Great, whose uh, the sign above his door read, King of the Jews. And they said to Herod, where's the one that's been born King of the Jews? Of course, Herod didn't like that, right? But, uh, and, and they said, we want to go worship him. But they're not worshiping him thinking, oh, here's a new God that's just been born of this woman. No, they're, they're worshiping a king. And what, it, again, this word means is just simply to bow to. They came before the king and they prostrated themselves. They showed that form of high respect. Now, for us in our culture today, this is difficult because we don't do this. Right? When, when, uh, when, you, when you greet each other, I mean, just imagine what that would be like. Every time, imagine how many greetings you've gone through in the last 24 hours. And if every time you greeted somebody, you had to fall to the ground, <laughs> we'd all have scuffed up knees. You know what I mean? Like, it's so foreign to our culture that if we did see it, we'd say, whoa, what is going on with Stacey Harper? She's bowing to everyone she meets, right? But it was normal in their culture, and that's the biblical culture, so... We have to have a little sensitivity to that. The, the second word that's translated and often paired with worship is the word that is serving. And that's avad or latrevo. 
uh, whether we're in the Old or the New Testament. But it's the word serving. And Deuteronomy 6.13 says, You shall fear only Yahweh your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. So that word worship there is really the word that means serve. It's something that you're supposed to give to God. But this kind of service can also be given to a king, even to a pagan king. Uh, Jeremiah 27.6 says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. So the wild animals of the field are serving Nebuchadnezzar. Are they serving him as a god? No, animals don't do that. You know, animals don't worry about that sort of thing. You know, they just sort of grunt and pull, you know, and do what, they're, you know, do what they need to do. So that's the idea of serving. And then here we have a really interesting text in Deuteronomy 5, 8 through 10, where both of these worship words are used that we see all over the, the Bible, the word for bow and the word for serve. And it says, You shall not make for yourself an idol. This is the Ten Commandments here. Or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. God's very sensitive about that. I, I don't know if you ever noticed that. But he's very sensitive. He doesn't like people making these images, these idols. And, and he, he's, he's really against that. So much so that when they made the golden calf, right? I mean, God just, you know, you, you get a mind picture that God's like, let me at him. And Moses is like, holding them back, you know, up there on the mountain. And God's like, I'll just start over with you. And, you know, they made a statue. God has, it's like a sore spot. You just don't, you don't mess with that. You don't make a statue and bow to it. It really upsets him. Um, and so this is one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not worship them or serve them. And now the first one is bow. It's just the word that means bow. It could be done to humans. It could be done to statues. It could be done to God. It could be done to gods if it was an idol. Um, but here is translated worship. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love and kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. God is a jealous God. He does not want worship that's due to him to go to somebody in competition with him. That bothers him. And it makes sense. You know, he made us. He made the universe. You know, we, we don't have really stamps on our feet that said, made by God, like you have on a toy that says made in China. But, you know, I feel like DNA is kind of like that. It's like God's stamp, like, hey, pretty cool, huh? You know, double helix. You know, like he invented that, you know. So it makes sense that we would give him praise and glory and not to something that is made. All right, so that's worship vocabulary. Let's move on to talk about worship acts because let's face it, when I ask you the question, should we worship Jesus? It's more than just bowing to Jesus that I'm I'm talking about, isn't it? It's more than just serving Jesus. I think it's totally uh, obvious that we should bow to Jesus. I think it's totally obvious that we should serve Jesus, that he's our, that's what Lord means, right? So why is this question hard for us to answer? Um, and I think it's because the way we use worship is in these nine worship acts. Now, there could be others, but these are just the ones I'm aware of, okay? So let's consider these in relationship to God. Uh, these are all in your notes already, but the first one is submission, right? And this is this idea of bowing, kneeling, or prostrating. Would you agree that this is an act of worship that you would do to God? All right. 
Um, adoration is the second one. It's, it's the emotional aspect of worship, right? The love, the devotion, the gratitude. Do, would you agree that this is part of what you think of as worship when you say, hey, I'm going to go worship God today? Okay. Veneration. This is the aspect of fearing the awesomeness of God, uh, revering Him, respecting Him. This is part of worship, right? This is part of that experience where you're, you're locked into God and you're, you're giving Him this uh, praise. Praise is recounting His attributes, you know, saying, God, you are holy, you are just, you are the one in whom is no sin, you know, you are the beginning and the end. These are attributes of God and His deeds. You know, you created the heavens and the earth. You redeemed your people from Egypt and sent your servant Moses to save them. You know, this is praising God. And I also put tongues in there, speaking in tongues, because this is also, you know, just in a different language, but it's praising God, right? And so that's definitely worship. Amen? All right, then we have meditation. I tried to be thorough, okay? You have to forgive me. I I, I tend to get a little nerdy on these things, but... uh, I know somebody's going to say, well, what about this other one? I probably did leave it out. But here we go. Meditation. This is contemplating, communing, and fellowshipping uh, with God. You know, have you ever done that where you just got quiet? Let's say you're having a time of prayer, and then you just stop talking, and you spend a little time with God, and you just sort of contemplate who God is, and you commune with Him. Has anybody ever done that? Or am I just making this up? All right, okay, a couple of you weirdos out there into meditation. (laughs) But that would be an act of worship, right? And then we have sacrifices. This is classic Old Testament worship. How do you worship God in the Old Testament? You take an animal, you bring it to the temple, and the priest kills it. And then you get to eat a little part of it, you know, have a little barbecue. You know, and it's this joyous thing of worshiping God. And so you have... uh, this is just in general. You have animal sacrifices. You can have cereal, which is like grain offerings. You have uh, wine. Uh, in in uh, other traditions, they offer candy to their gods, put a little candy on a plate, or their hair. Um, this is not done in Christianity, but it's, it's another aspect of you know, a worship act that will fall under sacrifices, I would say. Um, and then for us, I think it more comes down to money. You know what I mean? Because we're not really killing the animals anymore. Um, but we are offering our money, and, uh, and that is a sacrifice to the service of God, isn't it? Uh, so that's definitely worship. And then sacred texts, you know, dealing with sacred texts, whether you're reading or reciting or chanting or memorizing, this, this is also uh, an act of worship. And then you have serving. Serving is you follow laws, you know, you seek to please God, you, you have a lifestyle that's in tune with God, and then you have singing. Singing's easy for us because mainstream Christianity has taken number nine here and said, that's worship, period. And so the uh, person who does the Bible teaching is not the worship leader. Who's the worship leader? The person that's leading the songs, right? And so for us, number nine is very easy. You're like, yeah, singing, that's part of worship, isn't it? Yeah, sure it is, Definitely. What I'm saying is, yeah, there's still all these other things, too. You know, a life, you know, number eight is probably the most emphasized in the New Testament. A lifestyle of obedience where you're worshiping God every day. You know what I mean? And also, number one, you know, where you're bowing and these other things. Okay, so these are different acts of worship. The way we use the worship, the way we use the word worship today. Okay, the way the, word, the Bible uses the word worship is just to bow or to serve. But how we use it today is, is a little more expansive, including a number of these other things. So I want to look at some verses here. 
and puzzle over these nine with you in relation to Jesus. Okay? So, number one here was bowing, right? Submission. This is what Hebrews 1.6 says. It says, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. And it's the word proskuneo. Proskuneo just means bow to someone, right? And so this is actually a command of God, which I find totally fascinating because God commands the highest beings in the universe other than God to worship Jesus when he's brought into the world. That's a pretty big statement. Even if we recognize that worship means to bow. I mean, this is saying to these, I mean, angels are serious. If an angel shows up, what's the first thing they say? Aren't you so wonderful? No. They say, don't fear. Why do, why do they always say, don't, don't be afraid? Because they're scary. Right? If every time I, you know, I ran into somebody, I said, don't be afraid. You know what I mean? That would be a little weird. But the angel, that's always the, you know, the first line. You know, and, and these are the ones that God has commanded to fall in honor and respect of his son. And so I think we clearly could say that Jesus deserves this sort of bowing or submission. What about adoration and love? This is easy, right? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. If you love the Father, you love the child born of Him. Number three, veneration, respect, reverence, fear. Should we fear Christ? Should we fear Christ? I don't know. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Wow. Ephesians 6.5. Fear and trembling as to Christ. Praise. Recounting his attributes, speaking of his deeds. I love this. This one's so cool. Second Peter chapter 1. This is Peter the Apostle. He went up on the mountain and he, uh, Jesus was transfigured and he heard a voice from God saying, you know, this is my beloved son. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory... From God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Do you see what it says uh, right up here? It says, he received glory and honor from God the Father. Jesus received glory and honor from God the Father. God praised Jesus. Right? What did, how did he praise him? He said, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. This is God talking to Peter and John and saying, look, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's praise. That's speaking well of somebody. That's lifting, him, lifting Jesus up as somebody that is very near to, to God's heart. Um, the next one, meditation, contemplating, communing, fellowshipping. We have this verse from 1 John 1, 3. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, who? Jesus Christ. Right? So, fellowshipping is not just with God. It's also with Jesus Christ. Sacrifices. 
I don't know if any of you want to offer hair to Jesus, but that, we could talk about that during the question and answer time, I guess. Um, but there were people that gave Jesus money. Did you know that in his ministry? Afterwards, soon afterwards, he began going around from city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Now, here are the women. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's servant, or steward. And Susanna. So we have Mary, Joanna, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means, right? And so there were people that gave Jesus money to support what he was doing. And that was certainly a sacrifice on their part, especially, you know, if they don't have that much money, um, which most of the people didn't have. Um, you know, and we, we, we give money to support the work of Christ, don't we? You know, because it's not different than the work of God, right? The two are, are up to the same business, right? It's not like Pepsi and Coke. <laughs> Sacred texts. Now, this is really hard to find in the Bible, a place in the Bible where somebody you know, like meditates on the words of Jesus. But then I was thinking about the epistle of James. And it contains more than 20 direct and indirect allusions to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. One could even say James is a meditation on Jesus' teaching. So I, what I'm saying is if you read the teachings of Jesus, especially Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and then you read the epistle of James, you're like, wow, James... Is, is sort of like remixing Jesus here and meditating on it and God's giving him insight and applying it to um, how to live today. Or, you know, in his day, but also to our day. Um, and then we have serving. Should we serve Christ? Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And then last, should we sing? Let's go to Revelation chapter 5. This is a scripture I want to look at with you in some length because it, it to me is a very powerful visionary description. It's a description of a vision that John received. And in chapter 4 of Revelation, he sees the throne room of God. And then in chapter 5 of Revelation... Christ enters, and now the focus turns to Christ. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, it reads, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book. Who's the one who's sitting on the throne? God, right? Okay, so God's sitting on the throne, and God has a what? A book. Very good. And it's written inside and on the back, and sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? You imagine that, seeing that. You're, 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 you're watching this. And there's God on the throne. He's got a book. And there's a strong angel. And, and the angel bellows out, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Seals were all about authority. You know, if you didn't have proper authority, you couldn't open a document that was sealed by the king. Right? And so it's all a question of who has the authority to open this document. And the angel's asking the question. And then there's a search. Verse 3. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book 
or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Don't cry. Stop weeping. Behold, look, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne... Now here's Jesus. Ready? Verse 6. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We're not going to get into all the the, the symbols here and what, what, what they all mean, but I just want you to take in the scene. I just want you to imagine it. There is a search made. Nobody's found worthy to open the book. Nobody's found that having the proper amount of authority to break open the seven seals that God has placed on that book. And then finally, this lamb comes. You know, a lamb is not a, you know, a very strong animal. You know, they're kind of pathetic. <laughs> right? And, and you, you read verse 5, you know, the elder, what does he call him? Does he call him the, the lamb of the tribe of Judah? He calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? I can get behind that. Yeah. You know, like that MGM lion. You know, that's Jesus, right? And then what does he call him? The root of David. He has overcome, right? And then the camera pans and the focus goes to Jesus and he shows up as a lamb. And it's like, what? It's, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because how does he overcome? How does he wage the battle? Does he take up the sword and kill everyone that d- disobeys God? No, that's not how he did it. He died on the cross. He died as a lamb, as a sacrificial offering. And in so doing, he defeated evil. He overcame. Really something. Verse 7, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So he just comes up and takes the book. It's cool. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures who are seriously powerful and you'd never want to run into one. (laughs) Don't mess with them. And the 24 elders, what do they do before the lamb? They fall down before the lamb. They hit the ground. Now the, the four living creatures are described in chapter 4, and they are they're not to be trifled with. I mean, we're talking about creatures that, you know, could like twitch and accidentally rip you in half. You know, like, oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. You know, I mean, we're talking about seriously powerful beings here. And what are they doing? They're falling on the ground before the Lamb. It's really something. And the 24 elders, too. Each one holding a harp. Right, Andy? Rosati? we got some music. There's a guitar player. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you. They're singing it to who? Who's, who's, who, are they talk, who are they singing to? They're singing it to Jesus, right? The Lamb. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. This, this is a very short song, right? I mean, maybe it was longer and this is all we got, I don't, or this is the condensed version. And then there's like the other six verses, who knows? But look at the song. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's truthful, right? They never attribute to Jesus anything that isn't very clearly in the Bible attributed to Jesus, right? They praise Him for for what? 
for being, uh, dying for our sins, right? What does it say? Um, you purchasing for God with your blood men from every tribe. You know, that redemption that we talked about last night, the sacrifice of Christ. And also that you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. You know what I mean? That because of what Christ has done, we will reign upon the earth. You know what I mean? It's a good song. I like this song. I don't know how it goes. But I think it's a good song. But this is a song that's to Jesus, right? This is a song to Jesus. So that means you can sing to Jesus. Let's keep going here. Verse 11. Then I looked. Now it's going to get intense. I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Who is this? Angels, right? Verse 11. Angels and the creatures and the elders, right? So we just added in the angels because we had the living creatures, we had the elders, and now we added in how many angels? Fifty? Thousands of thousands, right? Ten thousands and ten thousands. I mean, that's a lot of angels. You know, we got the room pretty full today. When we sing a song, you can hear it, right? You know what I'm saying? You know, there's, there's, especially if you're anywhere in the, towards the front, you've got the, the full power of all those voices behind you. You know, and it, it, is, it is awesome. Imagine 10,000 more. And now, now make them angels. And what are they saying? They're saying, worthy is the lamb. They're singing to the lamb. And they're giving him all these, um, these, these different attributes. You know, power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Verse 13, and every created thing. Okay, how much bigger can we make it? Right? Let's add in everything else. Everything that's been made, which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You know, just in case any of the fish want to come in. And on the sea and all that is in them. I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down and bowed. They worshipped. It's the word for bow again. Now, <clears throat> Revelation 5 is in our Bible. So, I, I, I think we have to incorporate it into whatever our theology of worship is. That's point one, number one. Point number two is, whatever you think worship is, I'm pretty sure that's worship. You know what I'm saying? Because I, I used to think worshiping Jesus was only um, the sort of respect you give to a king. You know what I mean? Because a lot of times in the New Testament, people would come up to Jesus and they would bow before him because they wanted to greet him respectfully. Right? But this, this is more than just to a king. This is, this is like, and, it, and it's definitely religious. It's not civil. It's not civic worship. This is, if it, it doesn't get any more religious than God and the angels in heaven singing songs. You know what I mean? So this is, this is, this is definitely a big category where Jesus has been exalted to such a position that he is now being sung to and bowed before and worshipped along with God. However, 
that brings up certain objections. At least it does in my mind. I don't know if it does in your mind. So the first objection that I think of is, isn't worshiping anyone other than God idolatry? Right? Wouldn't you think worshiping anyone other than God is idolatry? So let's define idolatry. Idolatry is, and these are just my own definitions. I, um, this, actually, the second definition comes from a, a friend of mine, Patrick uh, Navas. I put a little fo- footnote in there for you if you want to get his book. But uh, number one, worshiping a statue or a representation of God. Can we agree that that's idolatry? That's classic Old Testament Hey, here's a statue. I'm going to bow to it. This is my God. That's idolatry. We're clear on that. But then there's also this other kind of idolatry, like in the New Testament, where it says covetousness, which is idolatry, right? Or their God is their belly, right? I mean, there's, there, there are these a couple of verses where idolatry is kind of expanded out to include other things as well. And uh, I, I love Patrick's definition here. He says, devotion that takes attention away, detracts from, or takes the place of the glory of the only true God. I think that's a fantastic definition. I, I don't know if you agree with that or not. You have to you know, look at the different times in the Bible when that happened. But uh, it takes attention away from or detracts from God, right? Somehow it takes, what, it takes away from God by doing it, right? Well, if you sang a song to Jesus about how he's worthy because he purchased with his blood men from every tribe, nation, and language and made them to be a kingdom of priests and they will reign upon the earth. Does that take away from the glory of God? That's the question. Here's the thing. God has exalted Christ. And I'm, I'm so thankful that Reverend uh, Courtright read these verses in uh, Ephesians 1, 20 to 23 where it says God has exalted Christ to his right hand, even above the angels. You know, Christ is above the angels. He's at the right hand of God. That's the top position in the universe next to God. And uh, that verse in uh, those, these verses here in Ephesians uh, 1 says that he's been exalted above all the powers and principalities and every name that can be named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he's the head of all things, you know, that all these things have been uh, submitted under his feet. So God has exalted Christ. Worshiping Christ, now let's go to Philippians 2. We already, we already touched on this a couple times, but I, I just want to read it a little bit more. Philippians 2, worshiping Christ actually gives God glory. That's, now, that's kind of a new thought, but it's, it's true. And it's the only way this whole thing can make sense, I think, is that worshiping Christ actually gives God glory as the indirect re- recipient. So the idea is that you're worshiping Christ, but the indirect... Re- so he's the direct recipient of what you're saying, right? Jesus, you know, you are awesome because you, you know, were obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, right? So that's, you're talking to Jesus, right? But God is, is somehow getting, getting glory from that, right? That's, that's the theory. And I think it's well expressed here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. For this reason also, so it, it talks about how he died, verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, For this reason, because Christ was willing to go all the way in obedience to the point of death on a cross. For this reason, God has what? That's right. God highly exalted him. Christ did not exalt himself. God chose to exalt Christ. Just like Pharaoh chose to exalt Joseph. Remember that? 
So it was Pharaoh that said, Joseph, I want you to be at this incredibly high position of honor and authority in my kingdom. I'm giving you my ring, the signet ring that had the authority with it, right? Pharaoh made Joseph to be that, and God has made Christ to be exalted to this incredibly high place, to be at his right hand. Right hand, I don't think is a description of location. I think it's a description of authority, of, of you know, um, I always think of, Star Trek shouldn't shouldn't even go in that direction, but we're already there. What are we gonna do? Make it so number one. Anybody? Whatever. Pam got it, I think. But all right. For this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. God did that. Verse nine. God bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Verse ten. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. It's the same kind of language we just saw in Revelation 5, isn't it? The bowing and the inclusion of everyone. doesn't matter if you're, what does it say, on the earth or under the earth. Wherever you are, you're included in this. Verse 11, and that every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus is Lord, that Jesus the Messiah is Lord and then it's to the glory of God the Father. I love this quote by, uh, uh, also from Patrick's book. He says, in light of Philippians 2, 9 through 11 and Hebrews 1, 6. Hebrews 1, 6 was the one where he said, let all the angels of God worship him. Hebrews 1, 6. Patrick Novice writes, in fact, it would be fair to say in accord with Scripture that the worship, honor, glory, and respect attributed to Christ is something that God not only allows but commands, is pleasing to God. God is pleased when people worship Jesus. And God himself is glorified in this. Yet the honor and adoration given to Christ is, in the ultimate sense, an honor and adoration given through Christ to the Father, the ultimate source of every blessing in Christ. I felt like that was well said. Where are we going now? All right, Christ's transparency. This is, this, is how I, this is how it works. If this transparency weren't the case, it couldn't work the way it does. All right? You know what transparency is, right? Like a glass, you can see through it. Well, kind of. Right? Like in the old days, they had these transparencies. They put on an overhead projector. Right? People would write on it. They still do that? I, I don't know. We move beyond that. Pam does it. Okay. Um, so... Christ is transparent to God. So Christ's words were really God's words. Jesus said that. He said, my words are really his words. Christ's actions were really God's actions. When Jesus healed people, it was really God healing the people. Christ's will was really the Father's will. So even like what he decided to do and how he decided to you know, interact with people and the mission, right? That was God's desire, God's will. And Christ, in John 5.30, he admitted. And he wasn't, like, ashamed of it either. He's like, look, I can do nothing on my own initiative. I can't do anything on my own. Right? So, because Christ always spoke the words of God, because Christ always did the deeds of God, because Christ always followed the will of God and could do nothing on his own, when you look at Christ and when you uh, uh, talk about the things that Christ has done, who are you glorifying? You're glorifying God because it's really God's idea. It's God's power. 
It's God's words. And Christ is magnificent because he submits to that and he's obedient to that as an example to us. Which brings me to making pancakes for mom. <laughs> making pancakes for mom. So, once, suppose, suppose that my wife wanted to sleep in. She's like, go on. <laughs> suppose Ruth wanted to sleep in. And, you know, we have these... Um, <laughs> I, when, when was the last time we were away? Was it... Uh, I don't think I brought my clock... Did I bring my clock to teen camp? I think I did. I brought my alarm clock to teen camp. So that was two weeks ago, right? I haven't plugged my alarm clock back in yet. It's because I don't need an alarm clock. Like, having an alarm clock there is, is, is like, you know, what's the point? I already have three. <laughs> and then Ruth has an alarm clock on her side of the bed, so I got four alarm clocks. Do, do we need a fifth? You know what I mean? And they go off at all different times. Some of them snooze, some don't. So this is, you know, anybody with little kids knows that this is just how it is, especially once you get over, you know, two, three, you know, you start getting these uh, alarm clocks going off constantly. And, uh, or just one baby. Just one baby can do it multiple times a night, right? So, uh, you know, suppose that, that um, you know, I wanted to bless my wife and work with the, with the boys when they woke up and make pancakes for her so she could sleep in because if they're doing something, you know, they can't bother her. And uh, so, so we make pancakes together. And say my, you know, you know how it is with little kids, right? Cooking, it's just a disaster, right? Shells, all eggshells and everything. You know, you're chewing along, and all of a sudden, it's like this massive crunch. It's like, is that a bone? What was that? This is a pancake, you know? And, uh, you know, they get flour, you know, everything is all over the place, and then it's a mess. And then, you know, they go to put the, um, uh, the batter into the pan, and there's like a, a, a trail of, of globs of this stuff that goes everywhere because they drip the whole way. And then they probably burn themselves half the time, you know. And then you've got to treat the wound and then burn some. It's just, there's a lot to it. And so we finally sit down at the table, right? And Mommy comes down and she's, she's got her coffee. Uh, and and she's, these pancakes are there. And the boys, they're just beaming. They're just beaming. They're like, we made pancakes. Now, who, who really made the pancakes? I made the pancakes. <laughs> I could have made the pancakes in five minutes. It took two hours because I had to undo everything they do without offending them and making them think that, hey, they're contributing and really a major part of this operation, right? But, yeah, they made the pancakes. They did. They did. So, you know, we sit down, and, and uh, Mom, you know, she starts saying to the boys, oh, Noah, these pancakes are so wonderful. Danny. Oh, I'm just so thankful that you, you woke up early and you made me pancakes. And she turns to Wesley, and I don't know what she says to him because <laughs> he's a little young to help out. But, you know, um, and, and I'm sitting there at the table, and I'm thinking to myself, does she know anything? <laughs> I made the pancakes. How dare she attribute to my sons something that I did through them? Right? No, I don't think that. I'm beaming. I'm beaming because my boys, you know, and the, and the mother is, is, is loving them, and, and, and she's praising them for what they've done, and I'm just beaming. I'm just like, aren't they so wonderful? You know? And, but she knows that I was really the one in the kitchen. 
keeping it from burning down, right? <laughs> so I think, I think it is with God. You know, like when people give praise and honor to Jesus, God's like, yeah, isn't he so wonderful? Isn't it so great that he did that? He's the only one that ever did that. Nobody else did it all the time. He's the best. God even, a couple times, God comes down and he's like, hey, everybody, this is my beloved son. It's like you can't keep quiet, right? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God loves that. You know, God will praise him too, you know? So I don't think, it, they're not in competition. They're not in competition. They're working together. All right, let's, let's go to objection two. Because I also have to get up to my three limitations. Um, doesn't Romans one twenty five forbid worshiping any created thing? Actually, Romans 25 does not say that. Romans one twenty five says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I think if you're going to worship Jesus rather than God, yeah, you've got a problem. I think that's a real problem. But I think if you're doing it together, in the sense that now God is also getting that glory, then you're going to be fine, Right? You don't worship a creature rather than the Creator. All right, objection number three. Didn't Jesus say to worship God alone? He did say that. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Now, bowing to Satan, because Satan has said to him, If you you worship me, bow before me, I will give you all these kingdoms. And Jesus said, You shall, what did he say? Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Right? So if he bowed to Satan, that's idolatry definition number two. Do you remember idolatry definition number two? Devotion that takes attention away, detracts from, or takes the place of the glory of the only true God. Satan and the Father are not working together. Right? So that would be more like Blake Courtright coming over and sitting down at the table and telling Ruth that he made the pancakes. And Blake comes up to me and he says, look, you tell her I made the pancakes, I'll give you $100. <laughs> right? Because now I will be given that glory and that, that you know, respect and honor and praise to somebody else. But that's, that's not the way it is. I made the pancakes and my boys. You know what I mean? And so you, worshiping Satan or bowing before Satan would be taking away from God. Because God is not getting any glory when people do that to Satan. So that's why it's wrong. And, and besides, Jesus was not yet exalted. I think when the, the uh, resurrection and then the ascension happened, major reorganization happened in heaven, in the heavenly realm. That these principalities and powers, the, these uh, various authority structures were reorganized to accommodate a new person up there at the right hand of God, exalted to that uh, level. Didn't an angel refuse worship and tell John to worship God alone? Hmm. Revelation 22, 8-9. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said to me, don't do that. Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. He doesn't say worship God only. He just says worship God. Revelation is not going to contradict itself. 
In chapter 5, you have these people worshiping God and the Lamb. And then in 22, it says, oh, you can only worship God. It's not going to say that. It just says worship God. That doesn't contradict it. So let's go to these limitations. Oh, one more. Okay, all right, one more. Number five. Isn't worshiping Christ taking away from God who is jealous? I think we've already kind of talked about this. Everything Christ did and does is empowered by and authorized by God. Jesus is never in competition with God, but a willing son and a servant. For example, praying to Jesus or praising Jesus for dying for our sins ultimately gives God glory whose plan it was in the first place. That whole dying for our sins thing, that's God's idea. And moments before the plan got totally enacted with the arrest, Jesus said, look, is there any way out of this? Right? And God said, no. You got to do it. And he said, all right, I'll do it. But it's God's plan, right? So if you say, like, Jesus, you died for our sins to redeem us, that's God's plan. God loves that. He's glorified in that. All right, so let's go to the limitations, and we'll close here. I just have three limitations, and I think these are important because uh, we can get out of bounds with this. You know what I mean? So I want to just put some limitations on it. Number one, worship should be truthful. You shouldn't sing songs that call Jesus God or credit him with actions he never did. Here, here's, here's just a little example. Um, there's a, a song that says, Water You Turn Into Wine. Who's that talking about? Right. It's talking about Jesus, right? So now you start thinking about Jesus. Well, the you is Jesus, right? Open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you, Jesus. There's no one like you. And then you get to the chorus of the song, and it says what? Oops. It says, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. And it's like, whoa, what just happened there? Like, we were talking to Jesus, and then now it's like he's our God, and it's like I'm all confused. That's, that's an example of a limitation, right? If you start calling Jesus as, as God, if you start attributing things to Jesus that he never did, if you said, Jesus, you are so wonderful because you, you let your only begotten son die for me. That's not true. Jesus never had any kids. You know what I mean? That's, that's a lie. So I think worship needs to be truthful. All right? The second is that exclusive worship belongs to God alone. So you shouldn't use exclusive language of Jesus like, to you alone, or you are all that matters, or there's no one else. Here's an example from a a song. We're coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. It's like, I think we might have stepped over the line there. You know, here's the line, and we're over here, okay? Because worship is not all about Jesus. Worship's all about God. Because even when you worship Jesus, you're worshiping God. That's what, I, that's what I was showing you with Philippians 2. So it's not all about Jesus. Jesus is awesome. He's, exalt, he's the highest exalted being in the entire universe next to God. You know what I mean? But there's still that next to God part, right? There's somebody on the left hand. There's somebody that exalted him. There's somebody whose plan it was. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful to, like Reverend Court, I mentioned, I'm so thankful to our, our uh, praise team leaders and our musicians that, that they do fix these problems in the songs. I know there are like lyric purists that are like, don't touch the song, it's holy. Chris Tomlin wrote it. <laughs> Michael W. Smith, back in the 90s. You know, like, these are just men. They're just trying to do what they can with the light they have. You know what I mean? And I think it's okay. We should change it so that it's accurate. Uh, so primarily, and this is number three. If, if, if from this day forward you say, well, Sean says we can worship Jesus, so I'm just going to do that. Right? Forget all this other stuff, I'm just, 
we're, we're renaming ourselves from Living Hope to the Church of Worshiping Jesus Only. And from here on out, we're just going to worship Jesus. That would be a problem. Would you agree that that would be a problem? Because now we've stepped over the line again, and we've, we, it's like we've made Jesus into God. And so these, the, there are people that study these things that are actually Trinitarian scholars, and they call it jesus olatry. Because the Trinitarian believes in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if you just do the Son in all your songs, that's a problem for, the, for a, a true Trinitarian. Because they also believe in the Father, and they also believe in the Holy Spirit. So I'm trying to agree here with the Trinitarians that we shouldn't just sing songs to Jesus. And making Jesus into the primary object of worship flips everything upside down. So let's make God into the primary object of worship. Let's sing songs to Jesus. Let's worship Jesus. Let's bow to Him. Let's do those nine things to Jesus. I think it's, it's great. I think it's biblical. But we've got to remember who's who, as Reverend Courtright shared. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the light that you've given us. We ask you to help us to honor your son as you, as you have exalted him, as you have ordained for us to honor him. That we would recognize the work you've done in your son, that we would recognize his amazing obedience, his amazing compassion, his just relentlessness in pursuing you wholeheartedly. And praise Him for that and praise you for that. God, we ask that you help us to understand better, that you give us insight. And I thank you for being patient with us as we discover these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I've come to know Though my heart and flesh may fail There's an anchor for my soul I can say it is well Jesus has overcome And the grave is overwhelmed Victory is won. He is risen from the dead, and I will rise when He calls my name. No more sorrow, no more pain. I will rise on eagles' wings before my Lord. Fall on. Jesus.
Jesus has overcome and the grave is overwhelmed the victory is won he is risen from the dead and I will rise when he calls my name no No more song. 